are you in Philippians 4? All right, we're continuing the series, Partners in the Gospel. And I'm going to do something that, I, I, personally, I've never heard a preacher do. I've never done. I've preached out of this portion of Philippians before. But after really, really diving into this, immersing myself into the text, I really feel like Paul's writing one big, long paragraph from verses 1 of chapter 4 through verses 9 of chapter 4. By no means am I saying that if someone goes in and they want to preach on, on, on worry and prayer and thinking right, pastor did that I think last summer or something like that, and, and you can extract so many principles and applications and great things out of there. I've done that. I think that's appropriate. That's fine. But as I'm preaching expositionally through this book, I, I kind of want to try to want to do my best um, to preach it as Paul wrote it initially. And I, and I think what he's doing here is he's setting a context. We're going to read. He's setting a context in verses 1 through 3. What's going on? And then in verses 4 through 9, he's going to tell them how to deal with what's going on. And so we're going to read that in this light. And I hope that the word of God of this section of Philippians will make a little more sense by the time we're done preaching. That's the goal. Let's read together. I'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for, my joy and crown shall stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which laid with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. So he just set the stage. There's obviously an issue between two ladies in the church. Now, we don't need to get on to the ladies tonight because two men can have issues too. It's just that in the church of Philippi, it was between two ladies. Okay? And so that's the context. Now he's going to go and say, okay, here's how you deal with this properly. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Step number one. Step number two, let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Step number three, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and in the peace of God, which path is all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The final step, number four, finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And then his conclusion, those things, which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Here's our subject tonight, resolving conflict and restoring peace. Resolving conflict and restoring peace. Here's what I want to say up front. I'm not aware of any conflict going on in Fellowship Baptist Church. This isn't a reactive message. Maybe it's preventative maintenance. Um, and I think we all ought to be very, very serious about the unity of our church. Very serious about it. So messages like this might just be like an oil change. If you don't change your oil, your engine's going to mess up. Well, we don't want our unity to be messed up, so every once in a while we need to address this. And this is just where we fall in the text. But there might be some conflict going on that I, have, I, I don't know about. Maybe it's not outward, maybe it's inward. Conflict that's not been voiced. And there's some tension going on in your heart. Whatever the case might be, this is what God has for us, so let's learn from God's Word. Here's the truth. Sometimes even saved, godly, and committed Christians experience conflict with one another. 
And there are lots of understandable things that can actually make that happen. I'll just throw a couple hypothetical scenarios out there. Maybe two kids in our church date for a period of time. That's happened before. Jake and Michaela. Thad and Leah. Anyway. But then one of them breaks up with the other. That's happened before. Jake and Michaela. Thad and Leah. That wasn't even in the notes. Ask Kristen. That wasn't even in the notes. I just looked up there and saw them. I love you guys. One of them breaks up with the other, and the other, maybe the other family wonders this, what, my kid wasn't good enough for your kid? Pam, I know you never thought that. Potential conflict. Maybe some ladies, here's another situation, in the church are having a get-together, and a certain lady wasn't invited. The lady that wasn't invited gets her feelings hurt, and perhaps she assumes she wasn't just forgotten about, but left out intentionally, and she wonders to herself, will I ever really be accepted here? Potential conflict. Maybe the pastor mentioned some names on a Sunday night from the pulpit of people in the church who helped with a certain church event. Maybe four or five couples that he mentioned and builds them up and thanks them and encourages them for the role they played in the success of this certain event. But unintentionally, he forgot to say the couple's names who stayed after to help clean up. They even volunteered their older children to help with daycare that evening. He just totally spaced it. He forgot about it. And that couple walks home that night after Sunday night, and they just feel unappreciated. They feel forgotten about it, and they think, how could he actually take time to say people's names, yet not ever mention ours? Does he not care? Does he think that what we did was less important than what others did? Potential conflict. Because sometimes, listen, something happens where even saved, godly, committed Christians experience conflict with each other. And Paul found himself with such a situation in the church of Philippi. Two saved, godly, committed ladies in the church have some issue that has come between them and they can't shake. Their names, Yodius and Syntyche. Now, they were probably fighting about whose name was worse. (laughs) We don't know the exact conflict. But we do learn several things surrounding the conflict in verses 1 through 3. Number one, it was between two saved ladies. The end of verse 3 says whose names are in the book of life. So they're saved. Well, we know it was also between two committed ladies. These weren't fringe members of the church of Philippi. Paul says these ladies labor with me in the gospel. They came to Bible study. They came to Sunday morning. They came to Sunday night. They came to Wednesday night. They sang in the choir. They worked on the bus. They labored with me in the gospel. Number three, it was serious enough to be called out publicly. I mean, Paul called them out by name. Pastors don't do that unless it's major. This is serious. Can you imagine? Church of Philippi being read that letter after Epaphroditus drops it off, and all of a sudden, Yodius and Syntyche hear their name, and they're perking up like, what's going on? I mean, it was serious. Paul wouldn't have called them out by name if it wasn't serious. Number three, Paul wanted this conflict to be resolved. You know how I know? Because he initiated the help of a mature believer to help these ladies work through it. And on top of that, he told them, be of the same mind in the Lord. Ladies, get along. Resolve this. Learn to live in harmony in the Lord. Here's the bottom line. The fact that two saved, godly, and committed ladies can experience such a serious conflict in the midst of such a great church Doesn't that tell us that we too in the midst of a great church can experience some relational conflict from time to time, even between godly individuals? 
I'm reminded of this poem. It says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. If you're going to have a real relationship in a real church, then you will eventually have conflict. Now, this is so important. If you're going to get involved, if you're, if you're going to get in the trenches, if you're going to get off the fringe and you're going to get in there, listen, here's what's going to happen. You'll eventually disagree with somebody. You'll be offended by somebody. You'll experience conflict with another brother or sister in Christ. And I'm sorry if I bursted your bubble tonight. Because I think sometimes new believers or even new members who start getting involved are shocked to find that though Fellowship Baptist Church is full of nice, friendly people, it's also full of sinners. And you know what sinners do? They sin. And so if you're going to rub shoulders with other sinners, now listen, if you're just going to come every once in a while and sprinkle your attendance in every once in a while, be a spectator, not a participant, you probably won't get rattled that often. You're not close enough to be offended. You don't care enough. But if you're going to get in there, if you're going to go forward, if you're going to go all in, you're going to rub shoulders with sinners. You're going to sing with sinners. You're going to, you're going to sing in the choir with sinners. You're going to work the nursery with sinners. And, and, and you're going to go to church with sinners, and, and it's going to happen. There will be conflict. Here's the most important thing we need to understand right off the get-go about conflict. It needs to be resolved. Paul said, get along. Even if it takes initiating the help of a matured believer to help get you on the path of reconciliation, you, you cannot sweep church conflict under the rug. The unity of this church is too important. Why? Just so everybody can get along and be happy? No, so that we will not be distracted from getting the gospel out. When people walk into this place, what do they need to, what do they need to see? A glad church. A church of harmony, a church of unity, because a church that is glad is a church that glows for the gospel. We talked about that in chapter 2. It's very, very important. Jesus even said to the first church, to his disciples in Matthew 18, when, when someone were to transgress against you, Jesus said, go straight to that person. And if that doesn't work, initiate the help of mature believers. If that doesn't work, bring it before the church. What was Jesus saying? Was he going overboard? No. He was saying the unity of the church is that important. You've got to be serious about resolving it. You can't come into church, get mad, go home, stay mad. Come to church, get mad, go home and stay mad. It is not good for you. It's not good. And I'm not trying to be picky. I'm just trying to, trying to be serious about this. Trying to help us when these kind of things arise because here's what happens a lot of christians get involved in a church i've seen it even in our own church they get involved maybe because of false expectations or maybe because they don't know how to deal with it appropriately not appropriately and i'm going to help you with that tonight they get involved and, and they they get offended and then they just leave and they go to another church and it's great until they get involved and they get offended and they leave and they go to another church and it's amazing man it's the best church why did not i come here in the first place then they get involved and it's, it's okay if God, if God would send you to a Bible-preaching church or whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that. God's in charge of all of that. But you don't leave just because somebody makes you upset. Okay, that's not a right reason to leave a church. It's really not. You can't find that in the epistles anywhere. And so we got to learn, church. we got to learn how to deal with conflict when it comes. And that's, that's where verses 4 through 9 come in. Because Paul was such a great leader that he wasn't just going to tell the ladies in this church, ladies, just get along. Grow up. No, he, he, he was a better leader than that. And so he went on in verses 4 through 9. He says, let me tell you how you can do it. Here are the steps you need to take. And there are four, four of them. And it starts with this. Choose an attitude of joy. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again, I say, rejoice. You want to resolve conflict? You want to restore peace in your relationships in the church? Here's, here's where it starts. It starts with choosing the right attitude in the midst of the conflict. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling with an interpersonal conflict with somebody I love, it really bothers me. It affects my attitude. I can't focus. I hate it. By the way, if you're a Christian, you ought to hate it when you're not right with God's people. It ought to really, really bother you. And that's what happens to me. But Paul is saying this, do the opposite of what feels natural. Choose to have the right attitude in the middle of that conflict. And Paul has every right to say rejoice in the Lord always. He's not writing from a cozy beach house. He's writing from a prison house in Rome. So he has the credibility. He's practicing these things. So how could he choose a joyful attitude in the midst of, of house arrest for two years? And how can we choose joy when a relationship we really cherish is suffering? Well, the answer to that question lies in who our joy should be found in. Notice I said who and not what. Because our joy is not found in circumstances, it's found in a person. And Paul says rejoice in the Lord. I want to help you with this. Don't anchor your joy in people. You will let them down and they will let you down. And if, and if all your eggs are in the basket of other people, if all your joy is found in your horizontal relationships and not your vertical relationship, then when they betray you, when they disappoint you, when they turn their back on you, guess, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose your joy. You're going to sink. That's why when you come to church, listen, it's about your relationship with Jesus. Anchor your joy in the Lord so that when people do act like sinners... You won't sink. You can still have a proper attitude. Number one, choose an attitude of joy. Paul says if you want to resolve conflict and you want to restore peace, do that. Number two, demonstrate a spirit of gentleness. Demonstrate a spirit of gentleness. Look at verse five. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That word moderation comes from the Greek word. I don't know if I'm saying this just right, but it's epiochus. And it means gentleness. It means self-control. How might this help us resolve conflict and restore peace? Well, consider the words of Solomon in Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer, or you could say a gentle answer. What does it do? Turns away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. Let me ask you a question. What is, is your natural response to conflict, especially if you're the one that's been offended, disappointed, or betrayed? It's usually not gentleness. It's usually not moderation. Generally, it's the opposite of gentle. It's grievous words. It's harsh words, whether that is harsh words directly to a person or it's indirectly about a person. Usually, our default response is to, is, is to, is to utter grievous words. Think about this, though. When is the last time that harshness and wrath and impulsive behavior ever helped you in a conflict? Marital, work, or church. I don't think anybody could give a testimony of when your anger helped you in a conflict. Maybe you felt like you won in the moment, but five minutes later you felt like a jerk. And so it doesn't help you in the long run, and here's why. Because that kind of behavior, listen, that kind of behavior, harshness, is born out of pride. I'm going to show them. I have the right to defend myself. They won't treat me like that. But you look what Solomon says about pride in the midst of conflict. He says, only by pride cometh contention. In other words, it doesn't work. Harshness doesn't work. A prideful response doesn't 
work. It's, it's very, very dangerous and it's not beneficial when you're trying to resolve conflict and restore peace. What you need is a spirit-filled gentleness to come out of you. Are you hearing me? That's an unnatural response. It's a supernatural response. That's why it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. As you yield yourself to the Spirit, you walk the Spirit, you stay in step with the Spirit, here's what happens. Fruit starts to come out of your life. And so when conflict arises and you get squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. And if you're walking with God and you're walking with the Spirit, guess what's going to come out? Gentleness. And it's unnatural and it's supernatural, but God can produce that in you. And so at moments in which you feel like acting harsh, if you're walking with God, if you're walking with a gentle shepherd, he'll teach you how to be gentle. So Paul says if you want to resolve conflict, you want to restore peace, you start with this, choose an attitude of joy, and then you continue with this one, demonstrate a spirit of gentleness, or moderation as he says. But then he gives a third, and this, this is a huge one, put everything into God's hands. Look at the first phrase of verse 6. He says, be careful for nothing. That word careful, it means anxious. It means worrisome. He's saying, don't worry about this. Even in the midst of conflict, don't worry. Did you know that the, that the word worry comes from an old English word that literally means to strangle? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that how we feel even in the midst of conflict sometimes? We feel like we're being choked to death on the inside. We can't control it. We can't fix it. We don't like it. And it's like it's strangling us to death on the inside. Here's my personal definition of worry. Imagining the future in a worst case scenario and then freaking out about it. <laughs> That's worry to me. And, and when I'm in the midst of conflict, you know what's happening? On the inside, I'm freaking out. Because I'm imagining the worst case scenario. Can I just be honest with you? I'm thinking in my mind, wow, are they going to leave the church? They're going to leave the church. They're, they're going to go on Facebook and say all bad, nasty things about it. I mean, they're, they're not even going to like my family anymore. They're going to hate the church. All, all the time we spent ministering to them, all, all the friendships we built, all the, all the relationships, it's just going to be gone. It's, and I, I start freaking out about these things. And you know what it leads to? Some very, very bad side effects. I'm just being openly transparent. Here's what it leads to. The number one thing it leads to is I get irritable. Number two, I get moody. Number three, I get exhausted. Number four, I have decreased concentration. I just can't think. Number five, I get nauseous, literally. Number six, I get muscle tension. Right back here starts to hurt. And the worst of all, number seven, I start overeating. So if you see my, my weight fluctuating, I promise I'm not just a lazy, undisciplined person, I'm a worrier. There are times, even in the midst of conflict, that's the context of this passage, where my stomach is in knots. I mean, I've worked with my dad for nearly 13 years. There have been very, 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 very few times when we've been in conflict. But when we have, I don't sleep very well. My natural response is to worry. Am I the only one in here? Now you tell me, is that the best way to resolve conflict and restore peace? It's also not the best way to live a happy, long, healthy life. So what's the better alternative? Paul says put it into God's hands. How do you do that? By way of prayer. Look at the last part of verse 6. But in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. If you like writing your Bible, I want you to circle four words. We often overlook this. Word number one, prayer. Word number two, supplication. Word number three, request. And word number four, thanksgiving. Now I want you to look at the screen and I, I, I want to break these down. Paul just didn't throw these phrases around lightly. When you study these words, here's, here's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a five second prayer. He's talking about putting it all into God's hands by way of prayer. Number one, God, I come to you. That's the act of humbling yourself. Supplication, I need your help. Request, here are my specific issues and questions to help me sort through this, God. And do all of those three things with the spirit of thanksgiving, not a spirit of entitlement, but a spirit of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you. Now how might that look in those hypothetical situations that I mentioned at the start of the message? How might those things play themselves out as you try to replace your worry in the midst of this conflict with prayer? Well, let's just talk about the mother who's offended because that boy didn't think her daughter was good enough. Maybe she would pray something like this. God, my daughter is hurting. Because the boy from the other family in the church broke up with her. Lord, I don't know why this happened, but I'm bringing this before you. That's prayer. Here's supplication. Lord, help me not to be anxious or upset about this. Help me to think rightly about this. Help me not to obsess or overreact about this. Supplication, Lord, I need your help. Here's request. God, are you doing something good for my child and I just can't see it? Are you protecting her from an unwise choice down the road? Do you have someone specific and very good in mind that you're bringing to her? These are requests. God, God help me as I'm trying to sort this out in my mind. And then thankfulness. Lord, I, I thank you for your love to our family in the past, and I thank you that you're a God who only does good and will never hurt us. Are you following this? I'm just trying to help you. Okay, let, let's go to the, the lady that was left out of a get-together. Maybe she would pray something like this. God, to be honest, I'm hurt. I feel unaccepted because of how that group of ladies treated me. I don't want to talk about it to anyone else before I talk to you. Prayer. I come to you. Lord, help me not to get bitter towards them. And help me not to give up on getting involved in church just because of this situation. I need help. Supplication. Here's the request. God, is there something about me that I need to see that is causing people to distance themselves from me? Is there something I can do better in the future to develop and maintain closer relationships in the church? God, what is the right response to this request? And then thanksgiving, Lord, I'm thankful that no matter what, I'm accepted by you. I'm thankful that in times where I feel most unloved by those around me, I can always rest in your love for me. And thank you that you are a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. All right, let's talk about the couple that wasn't mentioned from the pulpit. They would pray something like this. Well, Lord, I'm coming before you tonight because I feel so unappreciated by my pastor and the church I love so much. It's like I do all this for the church and barely get recognized sometimes. Lord, I don't know how to feel or what to do. And that's why I'm coming to you right now. Prayer. Supplication. I'm asking for your help and your strength to keep on serving for your glory and your honor, whether I'm appreciated or recognized or not. I'm asking for the right perspective right now because I'm struggling with thoughts of giving up and stepping down. Here's the request. Lord, should I talk to pastor about this and try to help him see how I feel? Lord, am I being too hard on him? God, do I need to be stronger and less sensitive to man's approval? And then Thanksgiving, God, I'm thankful you've given me a church to serve in. 
I'm thankful you've given me talents to serve with, and I'm sure thankful that you've given me children that love to serve as well. Are you seeing if we really earnestly pray how Paul told us to pray, how that worry might leave our heart? Are you seeing this? Some have, have heard this preaching, so, and so just occasionally you've dropped just a one-liner to God, God, I need you. And then all of a sudden you just, you're, you're absolutely amazed as to why the worry hasn't gone away yet. Maybe we need to get a little more specific in our prayer. Maybe we need to put a little more effort into our prayer. Maybe we need to go into the prayer closet and we need to supplicate. And we need to request. And we need to pray. And we need to thank God. And as you do that, it becomes the rhythm of your life. Pray without ceasing. You pray like that. Guess what Paul says is going to happen? This is amazing. The peace of God. Verse 7, which passes all understanding is going to guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. you got to get this. He says, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. All understanding. What does he mean by that? It's amazing that, that when you pray, peace has a way of flooding your soul in a way you can hardly even articulate. Some of you act like you never prayed before. Can you help me tonight? It's amazing how prayer has a way of causing worry to exit our heart and peace to enter our heart. And here's what makes it so extraordinary and so beyond our, our, our grasp is that at times in which it doesn't make any sense to have peace, we can have it. That's what makes it so amazing. When you're in the midst of relational conflict, you're not supposed to be full of peace. But yet if you pray, you are, and it's like, I don't know why I have peace, I just do. It's beyond understanding. And then he says this. It will guard your heart. It will guard your mind. That word guard's taken from, from the word, it can be translated the word garrison. Paul was taking this from, no doubt, his experience the last two years with the armed guards that he was chained to. Four to eight feet away at all times. 24-7. And he looks at them and he's writing the Holy Spirit. says, use them for an illustration. Here's what's going to happen. As you pray and it becomes the rhythm of your life. Prayer, supplicate, request, thanksgiving. And you do it over and over and over. Here's what's going to do. You're going to build like this, this impenetrable wall. That's not the way to say that. This, uh, you're going to fortify this wall around your heart and around your mind. And so when things like fear and anxiety and worry start to creep in when you're in the midst of relational conflict, guess what's going to happen? They're not going to be able to penetrate your heart. Peace is literally going to stand at the door and guard you. Your mind, your brain going to be guarded by peace if you pray the promise is it's conditional you can't have it just because you've memorized the verse you can't have it because you got a fancy painting from hobby lobby with this verse on it i know you got it on sale but there's no way that it all of a sudden comes into your heart because because you got it on your wall when you get into your prayer closet and you pray and you supplicate and you request and you say thank you to God and you do it over and over and over again, that's when peace comes in. And do what Peter said to do in 2 Peter where he said, cast all your care upon God for he careth for you. Once you pray, leave it there. Are you following me? Put it all into God's hands and leave it there. It, it brings to mind the great game of bowling. I call it a game, it's not a sport. The great game of bowling. And what's humorous about bowling, the same thing happens in golf every once in a while, too. But when they're, they're lining up to bowl, can y'all see me? They're lining up to bowl, and they'll go like this, and they'll let go of that ball. It's amazing the things they do after they let go of the ball. 
right? You, see, you watch that on ESPN every once in a while? If you watch bowling, you need to find some better channels. <laughs> but I've watched it occasionally. And they go, and some of them will lean like this. Some of them will tiptoe like this. Some of them will talk to the ball. Get in the pocket, get in the pocket, get in the pocket. Some will go just like this, and when it hits the thing, they'll go. <laughs> just like that. It's just like a natural reaction. When you're on the tee box in golf, and you, you hit the drive, or, or maybe you're approaching a green with an iron shot, and you hit it, I, I, hear, I hear golfers talk to the ball. Bite, bite, bite. Stick. Stick, slow down. Hit the pin. As if what they're saying is going to change the direction of the ball. And what the bowler's doing is going to change the outcome of it after he let go of the ball. The fact is, once you let go of the ball, once you hit the ball, nothing you do will change the course of the ball. Just let it go. Do this with your anxiety. Do it with your worry. Do it with the burdens in the midst of your relational conflict. Hey, release them. Don't release them in prayer, then worry about it. Cast your care on God and then just leave it there. Paul's told us three steps. Restore conflict. I resolve conflict and restore the peace. Number one, choose an attitude of joy. Number two, demonstrate a spirit of gentleness. Number three, put it all in God's hands through prayer. Let's, let me give you one more. Think on the right things. It's amazing how this is going to apply to relational conflict. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, watch this list. What sort of things are true? And he says honest. Then he says just. Then he says pure. Then he says lovely. Then he says are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Uh, my mind, pastor has done so much preaching and teaching on the mind that his quotes just, I couldn't escape them. So I, I'm just going to put them on the screen. But they're so good. Here's the first one. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Let that sink in for a second. He preached that on Wednesday night. I was sitting back there and I, I wrote that down. That is just phenomenal. You're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. He said this for decades now whoever or whatever controls the mind say say the last of that phrase wins the battle you heard him say that before and then i came up with this one what we think matters and it matters more than we think it's not as good as the first two i get it it's underwhelming but it's still true what we think matters and it matters more than we think when conflict arises what is the natural bend of our mind it's not to think of things that are true about the person that just hurt us. You know why that's not natural and it's not easy? Because the father of lies is our enemy. And he whispers half-truths, exaggerations, and lies about that, that person, that family in the church, that preacher, that staff member. And, and if we're not careful, the longer we think about them, the more we'll start believing them. And then it's not natural, our natural inclination to think lovely and pure and just towards somebody that's not behaving that way towards us. You know why? Because society has hardwired us to want to win. And we don't win by letting them win. We win by getting vindictive. We, we win by getting revenge. We don't win by being pure, lovely, and just to the people that treat us just the opposite of those three things. You know why it matters so much how we think 
in the midst of relational conflict? Watch this. Because how you think eventually determines how you behave. Now watch what Solomon says in Proverbs. Look at it. Put it up there, Christian. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. This isn't up there, but it just came to mind. Uh, Proverbs 4, keep thy heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. It are the things inside a man that defile him. And so the things you think on are eventually determine how you behave. And I got to think in church, how might this show up in conflict? Now follow me, we're coming to a close. Well, if in the middle of conflict you are thinking of no one but yourself, how do you suppose that will affect your behavior? I'll tell you how. Eventually, it'll affect your behavior in this way. You'll be the victim. You ever dealt with someone that's a victim? You ever tried to reconcile something with someone that's a victim? It's not easy. If you're thinking all day about the motive you're convinced they had for doing what they did, even though you haven't talked to them about it, you're assuming the worst, how might that affect your behavior? Well, when they finally do come and apologize to you, you're going to be defensive. You've already got your mind made up for why they did what they did. So when they apologize, you're not accepting it. When they give you an explanation, you're not believing it. Because you've already, you've already thought why they did what they did, and it's made up in your mind. It's a stronghold. If you're thinking nonstop about how you can vindicate yourself and make things right, then here's what will happen eventually. You'll gossip about that person that, 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 that hurts you so that you can make yourself feel better. Are you hearing me tonight? Amen. Hey, I know this is trite, but you'll unfriend that person on social media because you know it will make a statement to them. You'll subtly seek revenge by giving them the silent treatment at church so as to make them feel a little bit of the way they made you feel. I know we don't give silent treatment, do we? No, I know you stewards out there. Us spewers, we just let it out. We feel good in the moment. We might hit a hole in the wall, but we feel good after we do it. You stewards, you're like slow cookers. You're like volcanoes. You don't talk to the person for four weeks, and then all of a sudden you erupt. Come on, stewards, don't think you're better than spewers just because you hide it. You do it. So in an effort to vindicate yourself, you give them the silent treatment. But watch this. Thinking right can also lead to positive behavior, not just negative behavior. If a conflict, you are thinking primarily of the other person, not of yourself, here's how that's going to affect your behavior. You won't be the victim. Here's what's going to be. You're going to be the first one to reach out to them. You'll be the first one to apologize. Because you're thinking of them. If you're thinking all day about giving them the benefit of the doubt and not assuming the worst in them, giving them the benefit of the doubt because they're your brother or sister in Christ, then when they approach you, you won't be defensive because your mind's not already made up. When they give you an explanation, you'll believe them. When they give you an apology, you'll accept it. If you're thinking about the necessary steps you need to take to restore the peace instead of thinking about how you can vindicate yourself in the situation, you'll not talk about them, you'll talk to them. You'll not ignore them, you'll include them, and you'll not unfriend them, you'll be friendly towards them. Because how you think determines how you behave. Is that practical enough? You're thinking, that's impossible. When I'm mad at somebody, <laughs> I don't think right about that person. And you're telling me, you're, you're, you're broadcasting some super Christian behavior out here. And it's easy for you to stay from a pulpit. It's easy for you to write in a little sermon. But if you knew who I was dealing with, you wouldn't think right either. And I'm glad Paul 
anticipated our objection to his pattern of resolving conflict. Because he's going to tell us, lest you think it's impossible, consider how I did it. Look at verse 9. It's the last verse, so you know we're almost done. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Watch here, watch here. Paul is saying this. If you think you can't do it, I know you feel like you can't and you think it's super Christian behavior. Think about what you've heard and seen and how I've responded in the midst of my conflict. What might be he referencing? Well, two things. Ten years ago, before he wrote this letter to the church of Philippi, he planted the church. Acts chapter 16. He started with a lady named Lydia, a rich lady. Opened up her home, they could have church there. Probably ate some amazing meals at her house. It went great. Then he was going down trying to reach people for Christ, and he came upon this girl that was all kinds of possessed and messed up. Giving him all kinds of problems. He got sick of it and finally turned to her and said, Get out from, from her, devil. In the name of Jesus. Changed her life forever, and people got mad about that. What did they do? They beat Paul. They beat Silas. They threw him into prison. And you know what they did? They cussed and complained. They got on Facebook and, and said how bad the government was. Actually, they prayed and praised God. Read it, Acts 16. And God was so, so shaken by that that he decided to shake the world. And he sent an earthquake and it loosed those prison bars from the ground. And all those prisoners could escape. And, and, and the Roman jailer knew that if Paul and Silas were to escape under his watch, that he would be sentenced to death. And so he took his sword, and he's about to fall upon his sword. And you know what Paul did? He went over and said, let me push you on that. Because you beat me. And because you cussed me. Because you put me in here on some trumped up charges. So go ahead, fall on that sword. You no. Know, Paul said, hold on a second, we're here. We're not going anywhere. And the man said, sirs, tell me what I have to do to be saved. And Paul led them to Christ. You can't do that if you're thinking wrong. And Paul says, if I can do it in a prison house with stripes and wounds on my back, you can do it if sister so-and-so doesn't invite you to their birthday party. And then he's pointing to Philippians 1. When he was in the jailhouse, we preached on it. And he was leading all these Roman guards. They would rotate maybe every 12 hours or so. And he was leading all these Roman guards to Christ. And it was creating kind of a chain effect. And then on the outside, these preachers in Rome, these preachers, these evangelists, were hearing how successful Paul was in prison. And the Bible says they got envious. They got jealous so much so they started holding these big old preaching rallies. Read it. Philippians chapter 1. And they basically had this intention. Hey, buddy, you think you're the only preacher in town? We're going to show you you're not the only church in town. And they began to preach Christ, but they did it out of envy. And you know what Paul's response was? All oh, those wicked preachers. I hope God just rains down fire on their ministry. No, you know what he did? He said, I rejoice. Amen. It's okay. And here's why. They're preaching Christ. Maybe of pretense, maybe of truth, maybe bad motive, maybe good motive. I don't care. They're preaching Christ. The gospel's being advanced. Hey, you don't respond that way if you're thinking wrong. 
And if he can do that when pastors, pastors who are supposed to encourage other pastors, churches are supposed to encourage other churches, not be the enemy, if he can do that and respond that way, then listen, sir, when another guy in the church makes you mad, you can do the same thing. Are you hearing me? When you don't get recognized, when you need to get recognized, you can still choose an attitude of joy. You can still choose a spirit of gentleness. You can still put it all into God's hands. You can still think on the right things. Paul said, if I can do it in prison, then you can do it in the pew. Mm. All right, so sometimes, even godly, saved, committed people can have conflict, even in the midst of a good church. So Paul says, here's what you do about it. Number one, choose an attitude of joy can't control your conflict but you can control your attitude number two demonstrate a spirit of gentleness refuse to let harshness be your tone number three put everything into god's hands through prayer supplication request and thanksgiving and number four think on the right things because eventually how you think will determine how you behave if you agree with the bible tonight say amen, amen. stand to your feet every head bowed and every eye closed